Psychologists have stated that very few people take criticism well, and the world can attest that the people of Boston are a proud bunch. So it's safe to say calling out anything negative concerning our hometown may not go over well. But today we're counting down some of Boston's least finest, so I think it will be judgment we won't consider personal. Today's episode is all about baffling Boston crimes, the 10 most WTF crimes that will have your heads spinning. Time to put our Boston pride aside for just a few, because this list is wickedly bonkers. Hey, all you weirdos. Welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week, we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast research gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 baffling Boston crimes. There is just something about Boston, man. <laughs> yeah, like the end. Episode's over. Yeah. Like, if you live here, you have a pride in the city that is unexplainable but so intense mm -hmm. and ingrained in you from the moment you like bounce into the world the moment you come out of the womb yeah maybe you don't even care about sports but you care about these sports teams yes because i don't follow yeah or just people talking ill about the city and the people in it we just don't tolerate no that here get out of here a perfect example is the marathon bombings the city was so devastated obviously but came together in such an amazing way afterwards they really did. Yeah. And I feel like when we say Boston strong, we mean yes. it and we show it. Oh, yeah. Not to say that we don't have a few bad apples here, just like any other city. Of course. Of course. Everybody does. But my dad will still tell you that Whitey should have been freed. All right. <laughs> we take care of our own around here. He was fine. He was old. I don't know why he was impressed. Why do we have to find him? You know, just let him live the rest of his life. Come on. I literally grew up thinking that Whitey Bulger was lurking around every corner in Boston, <laughs> and I definitely have heard my fair share of Boston crimes, but some on this list I hadn't heard of before. You know, I have a couple that I'm thinking about that I'm wondering whether you have or not, and if not, I am ready to call out the research gods. Because that's how this whole thing works. Elena has five Boston baddies, and so do I, but neither of us knows whose list is wicked bad, kid. Let's start the countdown. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just 
bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Ten. I'll start us off with number 10, the death of 24-year-old William Will Hurley in 2009. Will Hurley was at the TD Garden Stadium for a Bruins hockey game in October of that year. He left halfway through and called his fiance for a ride, but when she showed up, Will was nowhere to be found. Six days later, his body was found in the river near the stadium. In the river? In the river, the chals. Footage from outside of the stadium shows Will seemingly intoxicated, struggling and stumbling to keep his balance. Strangely enough though, the toxicology report showed low alcohol levels, but it did show 18 micrograms of GHB, which we know as the date rape drug. Ah. Super weird. A little weird. So it's like, did somebody inside drug him? Yeah. That's what I think. What happened here? Will had blunt force trauma to the head, an eye socket, and behind his left leg. So maybe somebody took out his leg and then hit him over the head. I think that's probably what happened. Yeah, seems most likely. His death was ultimately ruled an undetermined drowning. The weird thing about that, though, is that his body was also upriver from the stadium. And if he fell in or drowned, wouldn't he be downriver? You would think that, right? I'm no river expert here. No, I mean... But I would think that's the way it goes. Well, a forensic pathologist said that the bruising on the side of his nose and under his right eye could not be the result of falling into the river. So she agrees with you. He Mm. or she. He or she. Detectives think Will could be a victim of the Smiley Face Killers, which is an alleged gang of unknown serial killers. Terrifying. Yeah, that's a scary documentary. Nine. Number nine on our countdown is the Bussy Woods murders in June 1865. A throwback Boston crime, if you will. Two young siblings, Isabella and John, were sitting under a large oak tree crafting wreaths in a forest area known as Bussy Woods. Today, that area is the Arnold Arboretum of Harvard University. The kids were hanging, making some crafts with twigs and leaves when they were viciously and mysteriously stabbed to death. Um, that sounds horrific. Yeah, that went south real fast. That was really wholesome at first. It truly was. They're making wreaths out of twigs and flowers. Flower children, am I right? Wholesome. Isabella was assaulted and stabbed around 20 times. Oh my gosh. John was stabbed multiple times in the back, and it's believed he was stabbed while escaping to a nearby house. Wow, rip my heart out. Thanks. It's a crime that not only baffled the community, but shook it. And it became more baffling as suspects were questioned or confessed. Because, of course, you know, whenever something like this happens, you always have the people that confess. Which it's like, why would you want to take the blame yeah, for this. Yeah, I don't want this on my rap sheet. No, so, thank no you. No, thank you. Seven people were interrogated, but then released after questioning. At least three men allegedly confessed, but their stories completely fell apart for one reason or another, and no one was ever charged. So many visitors to the murder site trampled any clues, which made it even harder to find the killer, as forensics was still very much in its infancy at this point. Seriously. There used to be a small makeshift memorial or like a marker of some sort, but the land has been developed so much because, again, it's like Harvard University. Right. 
It's now unclear where the exact spot is where they died, which is Aww. spooky. Yeah, I that don't you're like, like that. it could be anywhere. You know, like the area, but you're like, you could walk around there and be like, where did it happen? Yeah, I don't want to walk around there anymore. Those poor kids. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of the top 10 baffling Boston crimes is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum Heist. On March 18, 1990, two thieves walked into Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and walked out with 13 pieces of art, estimated to be worth roughly half a billion dollars at least. It's one of the biggest unsolved and the most valuable art crimes in the nation's history. It's a small chunk of change. I had to read a book about this for summer reading, and I learned so much about it. Yes, it's fascinating. It is, and it's also one of my favorite museums in Boston. So this is what happened. Two men posed as police officers to trick the security guards, who they then handcuffed and put in the basement with duct tape on their faces. The museum was equipped with motion detectors, so the thief's movements were recorded, which didn't really seem to help. I was going to say, it really worked. It was there, but Plus. it couldn't do much with it, yeah. I guess. They were like, well, we see them moving. Yeah. So there's that. There's that, I guess. Now, the empty frames still remain hanging in the museum as placeholders for the missing works and as symbols for hope, like awaiting their return. And it's so spooky. It's wicked spooky, but the whole place has such a spooky oh, it vibe does. that it's kind of perfect. Yeah. Now, a man named David Turner spent 21 years in prison for the crime, but now he's no longer suspected of being involved and was released on November 13th, 2019. So not that long ago. It's a big mistake. Turner had been in contact with a man whose home was raided by the police. Now wait until you hear what they found during this raid. Oh boy. During the raid, they found guns, $20,000 stuffed into a grandfather clock. Oh. You know, the use. Yeah. Police hats, badges, and a list of the stolen gardener works with possible black market prices. That's suspicious. Yeah. Like, we don't have a body. That's suspicious. But, hello. Wow. Talk about incriminating. The police received a tip saying that the art may have been shipped to Ireland and could possibly be in Dublin. Hello, Dublin. Is it there? Let's go look. If you're listening, tell us. <laughs> Dublin, if you're listening. And we covered this crime in our greatest art heist episode. So definitely go check that out after this yes. episode. Seven. At number seven this week is the death of Swedish nanny, Karina Holmer. Friday night, June 21st, 1996, 20-year-old Karina Homer went out with some friends to a local Boston club called Zanzibar. They all got very drunk, and the others left Karina at the club alone. Days later, Sunday morning, the top half of Karina's body was found in a garbage bag in a dumpster. We covered this case on Morbid 2. This is another one that is insane. Yeah. This is the episode we had Billy Jensen on. I was going to say that. Because he, like, visited the crime scene. He's really into this mm-hmm. one. So after her friends left, Karina stayed at the club alone. She passed out at a table around 2 a.m., then went outside the club where there's others. Outside, she allegedly danced with a homeless man, so she was just like having a time. Yeah, she was going out for the night. She talked to a large man and his dog, both wearing Superman shirts, because Mm -hmm. remember, that's the guy who used to dress like his dog and come out at 2 a.m. and walk his dog to get girls' attention. I think he did it. I mean, he's the main suspect in my mind. That alone is 
is sus, I will say. And she also talked with a muscular man across the street. Oh, yeah. You know, the muscular man. That muscular man over there. That muscular guy. You know, that big guy over there. Huge. That's a very Boston thing. It was that big guy on the corner. I don't know, kid. (laughs) Uh, But it's believed that she was alive around 3 a.m. Friday into Saturday. And what's really horrific is her torso was found in the dumpster by a homeless man Sunday morning. Her torso. Just her torso. That is so far out of the realm of even thought. And it had been cleaned. Yes. Remember that? Yes. It's oh so mm. much mm-hmm. to this case. Go mm-hmm. listen to our episode because it's crazy. Her body was found a little over a mile from the club down Boylston Street. And she had been strangled to death with some type of ligature and then cut through the middle of her torso. Her body showed little signs of a struggle. And the lower half of her body has never been found. Bananas. It's still an unsolved, baffling Boston case. It Where really is. is her bottom half? I don't know. I used to work on Newberry Street, which is like right in front of Boylston. And I remember after we covered this case, I would just like look down the alleys in the dumpsters and be like, uh, are you in there? Not like in the dumpsters, but I would just look in the dumpsters. Just to clarify. Horrifying. Six. Landing at number six is the Blackfriars Massacre. In June of 1978, five men were found dead in the basement of the Blackfriars, located on Summer Street, which is an Irish-themed pub restaurant with a disco in the basement at night. All the clues point to a gang-led execution, but who to point the finger at is what's baffling. So the bodies were found by the cleaning man in the morning, that poor man. He didn't get paid enough for that. He did not. I know that. And they were found in an office where they had been playing backgammon after the club closed. I don't know what that is. You don't know what backgammon is? What is it? And it's a game. It's hard to explain. Okay. (laughs) We'll we'll play later. Yeah. Anyways, all of the victims were shot by a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol or by blast from a 12-gauge shotgun. Oh, just that. Just that. That's horrifying. Now, the victims included the owner of the Blackfriars and the night manager of the disco. Wow. Which I just love talking about a disco. A discotheque. According to the New York Times, there were other victims, but, quote, the police declined to give their occupations, but said they were known to be authorities. Hmm. Makes you think. Hmm. Authorities. Scratching my chin. Police said it was a dispute over drugs, but at the time, investigators declined to say if it was a drug deal gone wrong because we take care of our own. So far, I knew Karina was going to make the list. Yeah, I looked for her immediately when I got this Yeah, I knew she was going to make an appearance. And I had heard of the first one that I had, Will Hurley. But other than that, I haven't heard of these other ones. Yeah, and the, like, Isabella Stewart Gardner. Oh, yeah, yeah, We knew that one for sure. That's a huge one. I can't believe we're already halfway through the list. Yeah, and you know what? I have a couple that I'm waiting for. Oh, and I have to throw in a fun fact. If your name is Isabella and it's your birthday, you get in for free, by the way. Oh, yeah, you do. And it's really cool if you're ever here. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from Parcast. When you think of a criminal, do you picture a killer, a gangster, a thief? I bet you didn't think it could be the little old lady down the street who murdered her tenants. Every Wednesday on my series, Female Criminals, meet the unlikeliest of felons, mothers, neighbors, and unsuspecting lovers with a penchant for dangerous behavior. 
discover the psychology and motives behind their disturbing crimes and find out where their story stands today. But that's not all. Airing right now on Female Criminals is our special five-part look at the world's most infamous femme fatales, women who were deceptive and deadly, but not always the villain. Catch these episodes and more by following the Spotify original from Parcast, Female Criminals. New episodes premiere weekly. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of baffling Boston crimes. Starting off the second half of our list is Charles Stewart, the murder of his family and the deception that was revealed. October 23rd, 1989, wealthy Boston man Charles Stewart and his pregnant wife Carol are shot while sitting in their car. The headline reads, Gunman invades car, shoots couple. It gets national attention, especially when people hear Charles' 911 call. They want justice, but what they got was deceived. Have you ever seen the Law & Order remake of this I have crime? not, actually. So good. I have not. This crime is insane. Yeah. And there's so many little loop-de-loos and twisty turns. I mean, let's get into it. Mm -hmm. So Charles and Carol Stewart are a young, affluent couple who are shot after leaving a birthing class. They're pregnant with their first child, by the way, in case we had to make this more horrific. I was going to say horrific and also so wholesome. And just leaving a birthing class. Yeah. Oh. So Charles is shot in the stomach. Carol is shot in the head. Police work hard to track down their location when Charles calls 911. They're rushed to the hospital. The baby is delivered early. Carol dies from her injuries. And the baby dies several days later from respiratory failure. Ugh. So two out of three of them so far have not lived. The case got national attention. I mean, this is like a wholesome little family and an unborn baby. Yeah, it's like all American. Yeah. They're devastated. People want justice immediately. So lawmakers demand that Massachusetts reinstate the death penalty. Like, whoa. Mm -hmm. Charles blames a black man in a black tracksuit with red stripes. So Boston police terrorized the black community looking for a suspect. They even named potential suspects in the news. Oh, I can't. Yeah, and then January 3rd, 1990, Charles Stewart jumps off the Tobin, the Tobin Bridge to his death. Ridiculous. Which you could look at as like, that's sus, or you could look at it as like, you did just lose your wife and child. Yeah, he's so distraught. So, like, there's a lot of things to go into that. Charles's brother, Matthew, then tells police Charles gave him a bag the night of the murder containing a gun and jewelry to get rid of. Mm-hmm. I'm leaning more towards sus. So sus. But he didn't think Charles had killed Carol. Well, he did. Most likely for life insurance money. Oh my God, what? We never hear about that. Never, ever, ever. In case you guys don't know what that is, life insurance is never part of true crime cases ever. No. 
In the end, this exposed racial prejudice, stereotypes deeply embedded in the city by how quickly and easily everyone just believed Charles Stewart's story about a black man who did it. Which is just so shitty. So, ooh, I'm mad. I got really mad at this. It'll enrage you if you read about it. Mm-hmm. Four. Landing at number four this week is the homicide case of Jordan Miller. On June 5th, 2013, someone fired nine shots into Jordan Miller's home in Boston's Hyde Park. The murder is still unsolved, but the possible ties to the late NFL player Aaron Hernandez, who died in prison, and the theories of what happened have kept everyone guessing. This was a drive-by shooting into Jordan Miller's home. Miller was transported to the hospital, but died of his wounds, unfortunately. Now, on the night Jordan Miller was killed, a drug dealer who claims he was with Patriots player Aaron Hernandez and his crew says that Hernandez received a phone call about Odin Lloyd and totally freaked out. Uh-oh. So we all know how that went down. We do. The dealer claimed that Hernandez told his goons they needed to handle some stuff in regards to Odin Lloyd. Then, later that night, Jordan Miller was shot. Now, almost two weeks later, Odin Lloyd was killed. Aaron Hernandez was charged with Lloyd's murder and went to prison, as we all know. Oh, yeah. As we all know. As we all know. We all remember that day. Yeah. Ballistics in the Jordan Miller and Odin Lloyd cases were never compared, which I don't know why. That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't get it. But some people believe that if they were, this cold case would be totally solved. So compare them. I am one of those people. Hello. (laughs) The case report also conveniently doesn't mention the type of vehicle used in the drive-by. Now, a possibility many people believe to be true is that Jordan Miller was killed due to a mistaken identity when Hernandez and his goons initially went to kill Odin Lloyd. A lot of people think that's what happened. That would make it infinitely more horrific. Seriously. Hernandez allegedly committed suicide in prison, though, on April 19th, 2017. Number three on our countdown of baffling Boston crimes is the kidnapping and killing of Molly Bish. June 27, 2000, 16-year-old Molly Bish was kidnapped from her new lifeguard job in Commons Pond in Warren. Her remains were found three years later by a hunter in part of Palmer about two and a half miles from where she was abducted. Molly's mother dropped her off at 9.45 a.m., and then 25 minutes later, when the first swimmers arrived, Molly was nowhere to be found. In just 25 minutes. 25 minutes later. Vanishes. 25 minutes later, people showed up and she wasn't there, so who knows how quickly this happened. Right. Now, her shoes, a medical kit, water bottle, and police radio were found on the lifeguard chair. Initially, police did not think there was a crime, so they didn't preserve the crime scene. How do you not think there's a crime? You have a missing person. And in these cases, just, you know, overreact. And this is a 16-year-old girl. Yeah, just overreact. Let me guess. They thought she was a runaway. Preserve that crime scene, even if you don't think it is one. Just do it. No one's going to get mad at you. No. I'm not going to get mad at you. We'll give you a pat on the back. Yeah, it's totally fine. Well, a middle-aged man in a white Chevy Corsica, no one knew who he was, was seen hanging around in the parking lot in the days surrounding her disappearance. White cars are always terrifying. What is it about white cars? My first car was a white car. And it was terrifying. 
It was. <laughs> and, and you're terrifying for being in it. I mean, hello. There you go. Well, another man who used to fish and hunt in the area was questioned. At the time of Molly's abduction, Amber Alert was still three years away from being a functioning system, which is crazy to think of. I know, that is crazy. It's just weird to think that Amber Alert was not in use at some point. You know, it wasn't a thing yet. Because it's just totally been a huge part of our lives. Yeah, and it seems so important and so vital to these things. The Bish family is pushing for the passage of a familial DNA bill in the state, which would allow police to use partial DNA matches to narrow their suspect searches, which do it. Currently in Massachusetts, police can only investigate or ID potential suspects with exact DNA matches from the database. That's kind of BS. I hate that. Like, hi, look what we did with the Golden State Killer. I am so with the Bish family here. Like, use that familial DNA. Yeah, come on, Mass. so vital. I'm glad to see Molly Bish on there. Yeah, I I remember hearing that when I was growing up. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of crazy things on this list. There really is. I'm like overwhelmed right now being in Boston. And you know, you always have to wait for Aaron Hernandez to show up. <laughs> I knew he was going to be on this list somewhere. Yeah. And as I was scrolling, I was like, oh, I got him. And I didn't have him. So I was like, she's got to have him. There's uh, no and way. I did. They got to have him. <laughs> well, there's two more. I'm wondering if you're waiting for one more. Yeah, I'm definitely waiting for a big one. I think I have it. <gasps> Do you? We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of baffling Boston crimes. At number two is the Boston Strangler. There he is. There it is. During the 1960s, the murder of 13 women terrified the city of Boston. The killer was dubbed the Boston Strangler. Albert DeSalvo later confessed to the crimes. However, there was no physical evidence linking him to the crimes until after his death. His death, which also birthed suspicion. This case. You know, it's crazy. We have like a connect to this case because my grandma, Elena's mom, was living in Boston in an apartment where the door didn't lock. Yeah, they had to use a credit card to like unlock the door. Yeah, as this was was happening. And she lived with like three other girls. Totally could have happened. Yeah. Love you, ma. Love you. Glad you're here. In 1965, an inmate named George Nassar asked his attorney if the Boston Strangler was to publish his story, could he make some money from it? Hmm. Hmm. Why do you want to know, George? Have some money? He pointed his attorney to a former cellmate and convicted sex offender, Albert DeSalvo, who confessed to being the Boston Strangler. DeSalvo was out of jail before the killings began, but some were skeptical of his actual guilt because, like I said in the introduction, there's no evidence linking it to him. Now, in 1973, DeSalvo said that he would reveal who the real Boston Strangler was. But before he could, he was stabbed to death by an inmate. To that inmate, I say, what the hell? Yeah, I hold up a specific finger. Not real cool at all. Not nice. Not cool. Real harsh. Yeah. Even though he was in protective custody, someone got past six security checks into Albert's cell and stabbed him repeatedly in the heart, which that's personal. Someone wanted to silence him. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the real Boston Strangler. DeSalvo also had a draft of an autobiography that went missing, and prison authorities say it was maybe a drug deal gone wrong or over a piece of bacon. Wow. 
That's not a proportionate response. Definitely not. To anything to do with bacon. Just have a BLT tomorrow. It'll Everything just, will be fine. You can hold the B. It's okay. Personally, I'd like to assume the latter, that it was over bacon, because that's, wow. Because that's just very hilarious. Let's bring it back to a real place. Let's do it. In 2013, DNA from the last Boston Strangler victim was matched to DeSalvo. Some relatives of the other victims don't believe he did it, and the case has baffled multiple DAs because of the spread out locations of all the victims. Many believe the Boston Strangler is more than one person. I am one of those people. Me too. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 baffling Boston crimes, the 2011 Waltham triple murder. September 11th, 2011, three men had their throats slashed and their bodies covered with marijuana. Nearly two years later, the two possible killers are killed. One being Ibrahim Todeshev, who the FBI say confessed. The other was Boston Marathon bomber Tamerlan Sarnayev. What baffles most people is, if they had solved this case, would the bombing not have happened? Oh, just thinking about that. Right? As soon as you see his name, it's just like, uh, you get so mad. Yeah. In 2013, Ibrahim Todeshev was questioned by authorities after the Boston Marathon bombing because of his connection to Tamerlan Sarnayev. Allegedly, Ibrahim, at least verbally, confessed that in 2011, he and Tamerlan planned to rob the three Waltham victims but Tamerlan said that they needed to eliminate witnesses, which is very much like Tamerlan, I mm -hmm. believe. I mm -hmm. believe that. I agree. At least one of the victims was a well-known weed dealer, and the killers took off with thousands of dollars afterwards. There were signs of a struggle or fighting on two of the victims, and they were covered in about a pound and a half of high-grade marijuana. Wow. I'd just like to say, what a waste. What? You would say that. Some relatives and friends of the victims say they were treated badly by investigators because of the whole weed dealing connection, which like, what the hell? That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's not cool at all. Anonymous FBI sources gave differing, vague, and contradictory accounts of Ibrahim's death to the press. So it's already getting weird. But basically they say he was killed just as he was about to put his confession in writing. Coincidence? I think not. Oh, I love that that went so, so great. <laughs> it did. There's a possibility that solving this triple homicide sooner may have prevented the Boston Marathon bombing, Ugh. which hurts my soul. That really cuts you deep. Yeah. Yeah, that was number one. Yep, for sure. Anytime a Sarnayev is involved, I think that is definitely number one. I don't even like hearing their name. Ooh, makes me want to just puke all over you. <laughs> Did you find anything that was left off? Because I actually didn't. Two. Oh, I have honey. two. So one is an oldie. But a goodie. <laughs> it's an oldie, but a goodie. Jesse Pomeroy. Why does that sound familiar? He was the youngest killer in America when it happened. He was like way back when. He was like 14 years old when he killed like two other kids. It sounds familiar. He was known, like, very well known to be this, like, scary, scary kid. Awesome. Yeah, and he had been arrested at one point. He would use a knife to torture kids in a South Boston neighborhood. What? Like, he would literally, like, hang them on a hook and torture them. 
Oh. Yeah, he was a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I remember that. He was, that I think he was sentenced to death for the murders, but then he wasn't executed and he ended up being in the state prison in Charlestown for like 50 plus years. Wow. Yeah. And then the other one I was thinking of was the Craigslist killer. Oh, yeah. The fact that I didn't think of that really makes me want to, like, punch myself. You question your Boston card. I do. Yeah. I really do. I mean, the Craigslist killer, I remember when that was happening. Me too. And he's just such a dingus. Weren't you pre-med at that point? I was. That's hilarious. (laughs) It's like, ugh. Because I remember you had the Grey's Anatomy book. Yeah, he had hollowed out a Grey's Anatomy and he had, like, women's underwear and, like, a gun in there. He was so yucky. He was a dingus and a half. Ugh. Yeah. And I remember driving by the prison he was being held in. Yeah. Because John and I used to go to, like, Celtics games at Mm -hmm. night and you could see, like, the light up window where he was in and we were like, he's right there. Ugh. Yeah. Gross. Now he's dead. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. Spotify has all your favorite music and podcasts all in one place. They're making it easier to listen to whatever you want to hear for free on your phone, computer, or smart speaker. And if you can't get enough of these creepy crimes, check out our After Crime Countdown podcast playlist on Spotify where we've handpicked even more episodes about this week's stories that we think you'll enjoy. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and follow at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I think you do, because hello, you made it here, you can follow our other podcast, Morbid Podcast. You can hear us anywhere you listen to podcasts or you can follow us on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast and on Instagram at Morbid Podcast. And we hope you keep it weird until Monday, but I don't know if I should suggest if you keep it Boston weird. Just keep it wicked weird, wicked weird. Crime Countdown is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Produced by John Cohen and associate produced by Jonathan Ratliff. Fact checking by Kara Macerlein. Research by Ambika Chotera, Jay Cahio, and Mickey Taylor. Crime Countdown stars Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart.